Let's go to God in prayer real quick. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings you give us, and we thank you for the freedom and then the opportunity we have to, to come and to study your word, to worship you, and to learn more about you, Lord. I just ask that you uh, be with all those who are sick and need our prayers, especially Peyton, uh, as he's going through his chemo, and, and we just ask you help him to get over this quickly, to, to heal him, and to allow him to go back to being a, a kid once again, Lord. Lord, I just ask you to be with us as we go through this class, help with the Help us to take it and to learn what we, we take what we learn from here and, and take it out in the world and, and use it to bring others to you, Lord. And it's in Christ let me pray. Amen. All right, so to review real quick, um, last week, for those of you who were not here last week, we started a new series, and, and, it's, and it's going to basically be um, taking everything we've kind of gone over in the last six months or seven months and, and rolling it into. And the series we called was new being the new that Jesus is and so what we're going to look at and what we looked at last week was um, kind of some of the new and how Christianity is and, and and how we've kind of fallen away from what it was Christ really brought into uh, the New Testament church at the time and during his t- during his time frame and so we're, we, we kind of looked at that and then we my, my thought process around it is that if we're going to understand the new we need to look at the old and understand what the old was first and then what the new did when it came in and replaced and, and brought it in. So I'm going to continue using this verse from Revelations 21.5. It says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And like I said last week, this is an ongoing thing. This isn't I've made it, things new. This is a continuation. And the, the way this Greek, work work, the Greek word works is it's in a continuous, ongoing, it's constantly happening. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and are true. So, so last week we kind of looked at, we overviewed real quick um, Moses uh, bringing his people out of Egypt and getting the Ten Commandments and then kind of being where they were. So <clears throat> they left there. And then basically what happened over several generations, they finally made it to the Promised Land. They conquered the Promised Land. They plundered the Promised Land, basically took everything that God had promised them that they would, ha- would have and then for a while they were ruled by judges uh, for several generations. But those generations got a little bit restless. They looked around. They saw the nations around them. And then what did they want? Huh? What they had, right? Which was what? A king. So they wanted a king. and it was I called it king time. So they looked around and they said... All these other nations have kings to lead them into battle and to you know, represent them. And so we need that same thing. So they sold, I'm sorry, sold, told Samuel, the prophet, that they wanted a king. And he said, okay. So let me, he said, basically, let me go talk to God about it. And God told him, the Lord said to Samuel, listen, and this is in 1 Samuel 8, 7 and 9, or 7 through 9. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me for being, from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king's who will reign over them. So basically, in the end, God tells them, okay, this wasn't my plan for you, but if you want a king, you're going to get a king. But let me tell you something. 
It's, it's going to be bad. It's not going to be good. You're going to have a few good ones, but for the most part, it's not going to be pretty. And so, it went in Samuel 8, 20. He said but that we also, but this is what their response was, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may, ju- and may judge us and go out before us and fight our battle. So, they got their king anyways. Even after God warned them, they had several. Anyone know how many kings they had? All total? It's just, I, I didn't know. No, I don't, it's not really one of those things we talk about. They had 42 kings and one queen. After Solomon, the kingdom was split into two. Of all the kings, there were only six good, one of them being David. There was three that were good at first, but then they became evil, Solomon being one of them. The rest were evil, and actually all the kings of Israel, after the split, were evil, and so they actually never had a, a good king. So if you look at this, this is interesting. What if they had listened to Samuel? What, what would, what would, how different would it be if they had actually listened to Samuel? They sacrificed a lot to have that king. But if you actually think about it, for us, it would the new the Old Testament for one would look a whole lot different. You would have had no King David, you would have had no King Saul, you would have had no King Solomon. You wouldn't have had Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, or Song of Solomon. And you wouldn't have had First and Second Kings. All that, the history and all that would happen in there, we wouldn't have seen a little bit. The Old Testament would have been a lot. Well, what's the biggest thing we would have never seen if they had not gotten a king? Well, we would have still seen Christ. But, yeah, we would. He, I think he would have planned it out the way, you know, he, he, he would have still brought Christ through Abraham like he promised. What's the big thing that they did that they wanted to do because of having a king? Be like other nations, but how? What did the other nations have that, that they did not have at the time, after the king? Military? Armies? The temple. The temple that they eventually put, that Solomon eventually built, and we'll look at that here in a second, would have never happened. Because it was King David who decided that they needed a temple. And if you look at this, God never wanted a temple, and we're going to look at that as well. He didn't need one. It was, his, his plan was temporary. What he was doing in the Old Testament was temporary. That's why he had a tent, and we're going to look at that. But David, they conquered everything, and so David gets a little bored or restless, I say. And he looks around, and he says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 2, that the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within a tent of curtains. And Nathan said, You know what? That's good. I agree. God's, God's with that. He said that in 2 Samuel 7, 3. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. 
God didn't agree. If you look at 2 Samuel 7, 6, and 7, he said, God said, For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak of a word with one of those the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to, to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? It was temporary on purpose. The temple, the, the tabernacle that they built, the tent, it was temporary on purpose because it was meant to be temporary. It was meant to be, a, I said, a means to an end. Last Sunday, and, and I liked what Ken had to say, it was actually a means to a beginning. And so God didn't need some massive temple built in his name or for him. It wasn't, that's not the way he worked. That's, that's not what he wanted. There was no need to build it because he wasn't going to use it very long anyways. So he kind of flips the script on David. He says, let me, do so, let me do the building. Let me do something for you. And if you look in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 17, he says, now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies have declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth. Everyone know who David is? Okay. David's a common name. Everyone, for the most part, knows who David is. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they have done in the past. Starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you. So he's saying, you don't need to make a house for me. I'm going to make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried from your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name and I will secure his royal throne forever. Y'all understand what he's saying there? All right, he's saying, he's still, he's still saying, I don't need this temple. I'm going to raise up out of, your, out of your lineage, Jesus, who's going to establish my temple that I want built, which isn't going to be a physical. They didn't understand this at the time. It's not going to be a physical thing. It's going to be a, it's going to be a spiritual uh, temple. He's, yeah. Tell her she's jumping ahead. <laughs> um, I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I remo uh, removed you from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything that the Lord had said to him. David wanted to build the temple anyways, and he did, or, well, he, he continued, but God said David wasn't allowed to build it. Basically, he had too much blood on his hands, and so he said his son Solomon would be allowed to build it. So David then did all the preparing. He raised the money. He, he drew, put up the plans. He hired all the stonecutters. He got everything ready. And whenever Solomon took the, the throne, 
He completed it in 20 years. Now, so I, I find it interesting if you go back and look through the history of God's plans and what he actually had planned and then what actually happened and what he allowed human being, the, the nation of Israel to do. It's interesting because he wanted them just to have judges. He never wanted them to have kings. He allowed them, they wanted kings, so he allowed them to have kings. But he said, look, if you get kings, it's going to be bad for you. And it was. And then David says, I need a temple. God says, I don't need a temple. Where I'm at's fine. And I've never asked for a temple, but you know, I'm going to build a temple anyways. Okay, well, you can't build it. Solomon can. And then we're going to get into the warning around that. So they, they, they spend Solomon, you know, first thing he does, son of Solomon comes king. He starts trying to build or starts building the, the temple. It takes 20 years to complete it. At the end, they kind of have a, a huge ceremony and they invite, they, they take the Ark of the Covenant in and they invite God in and God moves in and we'll look at that here a little bit. But God has a warning to Solomon just like he did to Abraham, or I'm sorry, Moses when he gave him the Ten Commandments, just like he did to um. The Israelites, when they gave him a king, and same thing when they built a temple that he really didn't want. 1 Kings 9, 6 through 9. He says, But if you or your sons indeed turn away following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, so Israel will become a proverb, and a byword among all peoples. And this house which will become a heap of ruins, everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to his house, or to this house? And they will say, because they forsake the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them the temple just like the original ten commandments and the 600 that follow was tied to the same contract that they established or the same covenant that they established then i will as long as you do covenant basically as long as you worship me and stay faithful to me i'll stay faithful to you and they tied the temple to that same thing the temple's temporary it's like if you guys do not you know, basically he told them, if you do not stay faithful, I will destroy this thing and wipe it down to its very foundation. But the temple did serve a purpose. So God took it, even though he didn't want it, he did take it and he served a purpose for it. If you actually look, the temple itself was very similar to most of the pagan temples of that time. It had a lot of the same type of rooms. Architecture was similar. There were some things that were unique about it. Um, it even had its sacred place, which we call, refer to as the Holy of Holies. And most temples in that day had a Holies of Holies, but it was one thing that it lacked that it had with other temples. And we kind of talked about this a little bit last week. <clears throat> All other pagan temples, if you went into the Holy of Holies, they had an image or an idol of their God in that Holy of Holies. What did the, temp what did our, what did the God's temple have? Ark of the Covenant, right? And some, there was some uh, um, uh, gold stuff and things like that. But there was no image, there was no God in there to worship. 
and it's actually interesting if you look and see um, uh, some historical content. <laughs> when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, actually came in and, and conquered Israel, he actually went in there because he would actually go in any nation that he conquered, he would go into their temple, to their holy holy, and take their God, and he would collect gods. He would take them back to where he was, and he had a collection of gods. Well, he went to do the same thing here, and there was nothing there to collect. So they just took the gold and the stuff that was there, and, and, and we'll see what happened there in a little bit. But this highlighted the difference between Israel's God still and their neighbors. He, God could, would, would come in and inhabit that temple when he felt like it, and he'd leave when he felt like it. And they didn't, you know, in order to celebrate him, we didn't have to take him out and parade him in the street and walk him around for people to see him. You know, we didn't have to, no one had to guard the temple, the holies of holies, because we were afraid someone was going to come and steal our God, or their God, Israel at the time. And so that still, he used that to still show the difference between him being a mobile God or a spiritual God, which we'll look at, and a physical thing that was being worshipped. And so, that's the one thing that it continued to point to, was that God, Israel's God, was a spirit. He didn't need to be locked up, he didn't need to be guarded, he didn't need to be paraded around. He came and went as he pleased, and, we, and, and he went with them wherever they went. He wasn't tied to the temple or the worship house, and he didn't require human beings to do that. So he wasn't put in the temple, unlike all the other gods that surrounded him, he inhabited it. He chose to go in there, he chose to be that. Now we'll look at that in 1 Kings 8, verses 6 through 9. And the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And I think this is important. I think there's a reason why this is documented. only thing that was there was an ark and stuff. There was nothing else. All right, so it wasn't God in the ark. It wasn't, you know, you know I think there was a distinction there to make sure that people weren't thinking that the, the ark was God or the tablets were God. I think that's why that's documented there. If you skip down to 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11, it happened that when the priests came from the holy, so they left the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to, uh, to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So he came, he inhabited what they had built for him. You know, again, I, I, we need to emphasize and show that, you know, the difference between the kingdom of Israel and its God and the other surrounding kingdoms around it, who they had to go and place their God in there. All right, so this was very short-lived. Actually, it was about less than a generation because it wasn't too long before Solomon started building temples for other gods. How many wives did Solomon have? <laughs> 700 wives. And what did he do to make his wives happy? 
He built them temples for their own, for their, their foreign gods. Most of Solomon's wives were foreign royalty. Prince, uh, princesses, not princes, princesses, uh, people like that. One of them was actually Pharaoh's daughter. If you look in 1 Kings 11, 3 through 8, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wife turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from other, away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after, and I'm going to try to pronounce these without butchering them, we'll see, Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, Solomon did what he was, was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. And, and actually, if you go back and study this, he would actually worship the Lord still, but he would also worship these other gods at the same time. And that's why he said worship the Lord fully. Then Solomon built a high place for, I want to say that, that is uh, Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab of the mountains, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did all he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now there are some scholars who believe that he actually built a temple for every single one of his wives. There's others who say that they just built the temples for the specific God. It, no one knows 100% for sure because we don't know if, you know, there, more than likely there were some of his wives who worshipped the same gods, so more than likely he didn't build 700 temples, but I'm sure he built quite a bit to worship other gods. So then, God kept his word. In 587 B.C., now this is several generations after um, Solomon, he destroys the temple, and we're going to look at that here in a second. Under Solomon's son, the nation was divided into two. Then we went through a history of several kings and several prophets, basically where we went through several kings who, or several evil kings who killed the prophets. And it was a dark time. But then Isaiah came on the scene, and it was still dark. He says, but God still talks about his promise. He says, it is, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So even in all that they're doing and all the evil that they're committing, they've walked away from God. <clears throat> He's still letting them know, I'm going to bring salvation to the world through you. But he said, <laughs> so Isaiah then dies. And then at that point, Babylon, who's been run by Nebuchadnezzar II at the time, comes in, and I think it was a 30-day siege, conquers Israel, tears the temple down to its very foundation, just like he said he would do, just like God said he would allow and, and do. So what happens then is we, they are taken back to Babylon, and I think it's about 40, 50 years later, the Persians come and conquer Babylon, and and during this time is where we have our story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and those. The Persians come, conquer Babylon, and the Persian king says, you know what, you need to go back to your kingdom, you need to go back to your country, and you need to rebuild. If you look in Ezra 1, 
verses 2 through 3, 2 and 3. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with you. Let him go up to, Jer up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So he basically, not only did he allow them to go back to their, their home country and land, he said, go back and I want you to rebuild your temple. But it had to be rebuilt smaller. Could not be as glory, glorful and, and big as it was before. And you actually read in Ezra, I think it's 3, where when they actually lay the foundation um, of the temple, the new temple that they're building, the older generation who was around and saw the, the, the original uh, temple actually wept um, because of how much smaller it, it was compared to the original uh, temple. And what's interesting, it talks about you couldn't tell between, you know, the younger generation was rejoicing, the older generation was, was weeping, and they said you actually couldn't tell what was what. And it, and it was kind of a, a, a point of the fact that you, when you leave and, and disobey God, there's no, no limit to how low he can knock you down. And so it was kind of a message to Israel. And from what we can tell from that point on, God never inhabited the temple again. It was rebuilt, um, kind of made not to the glory that it was before. And then we have Haggai who comes along. And again, we started this promise. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how, did you, and how do you see it now? Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that name. Declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declare the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus said the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come, over, come, out, come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill the house with his glory, says the Lord of hosts. So he, he, he says, look, Yep, you see what happened. You saw the old temple in its glory, but don't fret, right? Again, this is, it's not about the temple. It's not about what you, know, you can build to honor me. It's what I'm going to do through you and bring out through you. So they kind of go into a dark period of basically bad kings and prophets, or I'm sorry, bad kings who killed prophets again. And they, left, they basically left God again. And at that point, Malachi kind of comes on the scene. And Malachi berates the people, kind of like most of the other ones did. He gets on to them for their faith, uh, faithlessness, their immorality, their selfishness. He reminds the nation of God's unending love. So he kind of does the standard, what a standard prophet would do. Come and get on to them, tell them what they need to do. But early on, Malachi, again, reminds them because I'm, I'm they need to be reminded because obviously they're going through these very dark periods there was a lot more dark periods for for Israel than there was good periods because of the, the they continue to leave God 
He, he, but he went on and said, look, basically, you are, the world's going to be blessed through you. So in Malachi 1.11, he says, for, the, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. And then he goes on in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Shortly after that, Malachi, I believe, disappeared into the desert. And there was pretty much 400 years of silence. There were no prophets. They were under foreign control most of the time. There was a short period in there where the Maccabees kind of freed themselves from the Greek um, occupation, but that didn't last very long. Uh, there was some thought that the, the Maccabees were going to, or I forget his, what his first name was, uh, was going to be the, the messenger, the, the savior that was coming. But then in 63 B.C., they were annexed into the Roman Republic. And that kind of gets us caught up through a very quick two-week study of the old. Now, there's not really much. It kind of finishes in Malachi, and then there's kind of a 400-year gap where there were no prophets. There were, were not. Basically, they were Israel was occupied for, by foreign countries. I think there was like four or five different um, different uh, countries or, or groups at the time that conquered and ruled over them. Um, but that was it. So there's a reason I went through all that. Again, I, I wanted to say, in order to understand the new, you have to understand the old. And the old was an old covenant of 600 and some rules and regulations and laws that they had to abide by. If they didn't, God was going to forsake them, which happened over and over and over again. They continued to not want to listen to God. They did not want to worship God the way he wanted to be worshipped. They wanted a king, so he gave them a king. They wanted a temple, so they gave him a temple. And all this stuff that he did for them, and he still worked it out. And you know, Obviously, God's God, and he knew what was going to happen. He worked it out to where Jesus would come through the line of David. And that's where we get to God's promise being fulfilled. If we look at Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when the, holiness of this or when the fullness of this time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That line right there is so foreign to what they thought was going to happen and what they thought their covenant was going to look like. They did not recognize it when it hit him in the face. They didn't recognize it when he was standing in front of them. And they nailed him to a tree. And so this is where it starts. In Matthew 1, verse 20 through 23. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translate God is with us. So thousands of years from starting in Exodus at Mount Sinai all the way to this point, finally God has sent the fulfillment of what he said he was going to do, which is bless Abraham, bless David, bless the Israel, the nation of Israel through them, or I'm sorry, bless the world through them. They didn't understand it, and they can continue to understand, we're going to see. That's why we're going to focus on what this new is, how, what the temple is now, you know, those type of things, and what, what, how new this idea of some little baby being born to a virgin girl, and all of a sudden she's, this kid's going to be our ruler. This, this is not what they were looking for. They, they really thought that God was going to come back almost like a knight in shine armor on a white horse, come back with an army and destroy, at that time, the Roman Empire and conquer it and reestablish his throne in the temple. And he would come back to the temple and visit it one last time. And we'll look at that. And I finished a little early, but... He, he does, and he visits the temple several times. But we're going to look at some of the things that he did around the temple and, and, and how he shows his authority. And we looked at it a little bit already. But this is, what we're, this is going to be the new that I want us to focus on. And, and when we talk about restoring New, Test, new Testament Christianity, when we talk about being how Jesus was and being how his disciples and his apostles were, that's what I want us, that's what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. That is what we're going to look at taking ourselves and applying to the church and to the world versus a little bit of what we, we do today. And that's what I want people to see because I think sometimes we read through the New Testament and, and we don't really understand the impact and the change and I'll call it the the like I said, I almost called this ra the radical the radicalism that he was. I mean, he was uh, a lot of people thought him and his followers were absolutely crazy because of how different and how new the things that he brought in and the things he talked about and the things he did were, and how foreign they were to everyone. There, there, there. It's a it's a common concept to us. We've all grew up in it, right? We've all been a part of it for several years. It's, it's, it's part of our culture. It wasn't part of their culture. None of this was that he's going to bring in. So we'll, look at, we'll start looking at that next week. We'll, we'll, we'll go through the new. We're going to look at, and we've looked, like I said, we've looked at some of it already, but we're going to look at how he, he, he showed his authority of God and how he came in. But then we're also going to look at some of the things I think we, you know, I, I talked about this last week. Some of the things we focus on, and, and I want to keep you to keep this in your head. Sometimes we focus on too much on, on what we should do as the church instead of what we should be as the church. And, and there's a difference, right? And, and we focus on the things that we should do for God as the church or as individuals, but we, we kind of lose that focus on how we should be toward one another and I'm actually going to, we're going to highlight and we're going to look at the things we do to, for each other and the way we treat each other, I think in some cases are more important 
than what we do for God. Because in a sense, doing that is doing things for God in a way. And we're going to look at that uh, a little bit. And so that's what I want us to, to look at and focus on. Now, I'm not saying the things that we do, you know, the worship that we do in here, the, the, the songs we sing, the things that we do, I'm not saying that this is not important, what we come in here and do. I'm not saying this is not important. But I, I do believe that what we do outside of here is more important than what we do in here. And some people may agree, disagree with me on that. We can talk about it. But because what goes on out there and what we do out there has a huge impact on what comes in here and what happens in here and who's worshipped in here. And, we'll, and we're going to look at a lot of that. And, and it's going to boil down to, and so if you have time, if you want to try to get a, a jump start, and if you have time, it's going to boil down to one word. Can anyone guess what that one word's going to be? Who said love? Good. And then we're going to build a lot of stuff around that. And, and, I, and I hope, and I, like I said last week, I hope that as we go through this, that it will change your view, and it will change how you approach things, and it will change how you do things, and have the same impact that, I, I, that it had on me. I hope it has on you. And that, that's kind of my goal is to, to, for you all to see that. Because, like I said, sometimes I, I think we've kind of lost our way a little bit. So, uh, we've gotten to a point where the important thing is coming to church and sitting in the pew and, and making sure we, we check that checkbox off on Sunday. But for the rest of the week, we kind of just, we're out in the world doing our thing. Not really, you know. And I would say the flip needs to, the, it needs to be the flip way around. All right, we need to, you know, Sunday, or Monday, Tuesday, most of the day, Wednesday, most of the day, or all Thursday and all Friday and Saturday. Those need to be the days where people really see that we are Christians and what we do. Those need to be the days that we're out there and everyone sees that, not the, the Sunday. Yeah, people need to see us coming in church on Sunday, but you get to a point where, well, we live in the South, about everyone goes to church on Sunday. All right? <laughs> it has changed. It's not near what it used to be. But, but still, for the most part, we're still in the Bible Belt. And it's a common thing for, you know, Christian and Christianity's kind of become a, a blanket statement for just about anyone who goes to church or at least once or twice a, a year, right? And, and we're going to show that that's not what Christianity and what we see today, that, that's not, that was not Christianity, that wasn't Christianity that got established. And if we actually really want to go back to the New Testament church, if we really want to call ourselves that and be that, that's going to be an eye-opening experience for a lot of people. And I'll be honest with you, it will be an eye-opening experience for a lot of people. All right? If we want to call ourselves the one true church and the, the New Testament church, then we'll look at that. <laughs> and, see, and, and I'm not trying to be hard. I'm not trying to be hard. But I, I want us to... There was a reason we called ourselves the Church of Christ. There's a reason why we, we established the things that we did. But if we really want to do that, and we really want to change the way we, the way, if we want to have the same impact the New Testament church did, it, it's, it's going to be eye-opening, I think, for some of you. Maybe not. I think, I think deep down a lot of it's there. We've read it. We see it. We know it. It's just going to be, are we willing to actually do it? And that's the thing. It's easy. I mean, it's really easy to be a Christian 
when most of your Christianity is coming in on Sundays and Wednesdays and, and being a good person out in the world, not cussing, not drinking, you know, doing those type of things. That's, a, that's an easy version of Christianity, right? But when you're being a Christian to the point where people want to kill you for it, that's a hard version of Christianity. And we live in a different time. We different live in a different society. And that's going to, that kind of persecution is going to be different. Not so much. I mean, there's some people out there, gosh, you start talking to them about Christ and they will, they'll want to kill you. There are there's some out there. But not near what we saw in Jesus. And like I said last year, or I'm sorry, last week, there we have, honestly, we have no excuse. I mean, we really have no excuse. If you look at how they grew the church in what they grew it in, they had two of the most powerful entities at the time trying to stop and kill them, and they spread like wildfire. We have nothing hindering us, really, from growing the church and spreading the gospel. Absolutely, really nothing. I mean, we can say some things. We can say, well, we have this, these people out here who are against us, and we have these people out here who are against us. But really, truthfully, and that's why every, and you'll notice, and I, don't, and I do this for a reason, I thank God every time I pray for the freedom we have to come and worship him. Because a lot of places do not have that. And, it, and the, you know, the technology they had at the time was the Roman road, which in its time was pretty awesome. I mean, someone built a huge road in the middle of nowhere with bricks, and, and, you know, and so, I mean, it was an awesome thing. But, you know, I mean, you look at it, and they met daily in their house, all right? We suggest life group meetings for once a month, and that's too much for people, all right? You know, I, I mean, and I'm being serious. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm just being honest, right? We make excuses for a lot of things, and so... You know, we look at the sacrifice. I mean, we look at, like, just some of the studies I'm doing now, what's going on now, like in places like China. You know, missionaries will go over there, and people, I was reading one of the book, one study I was doing and one re- book I was researching, and a guy goes over to China in a rural area of China, and they have to meet in a, in a, in a house church. But here's the thing. They can't all go to that house at the same time. So they don't start at a, at a given time. Basically what it is, over an hour or a few, several hour period, one person will show up. Then another person will show up. Then another person will show up. Because if five or six people show up at a house at one time, everyone gets suspicious. Right? So then they start studying and studying the Word. And when they're done, they say, hey, can we do this for several more weeks? He's like, yeah, I'm going to be here for a while. We can do this daily. These are farmers... These are people who are, their livelihood is reliant on their fields being planted, all this stuff, and they forsook all of that, didn't plant their fields, didn't do any of that stuff for two to three weeks so they could sit and listen to this guy talk to them about the Bible and study the Word. What are we willing to give up? <laughs> about, right? And again, we're at 10, 15. I'm not trying to be harsh, but I'm being realistic and real 
uh, if we want to look at the new and really look at the new and really study the new and grasp what that is, we may not like it. But I'm going to show it to you anyways. All right, next week.